Welcome to the Stone Choir Podcast. I am Corey J. Mahler. And I'm still woe. On today's Stone Choir, we're going to begin part three of our episode discussing the subject of the Jews in history. Uh, before we begin, I just want to do a little bit of brief housekeeping. Uh, first, thank you to everyone who's listening. We uh, had our biggest month ever in June. Uh, we don't Like we've said on the listener feedback episode, we don't have any creepy tracking, so we don't know exact numbers. But based on bandwidth, we're guessing we probably have about 3,000 listeners every week, which is incredible. It's, it's very humbling for us to have so many people excited to tune in every week. And that's entirely word of mouth. That's you sharing with friends. So thank you to everyone who's been sharing. It's, it means a lot. And you know, I'm, we're thankful that you are getting something out of it. If you want to help continue spreading the word, please take a moment in your podcast player to leave us a five-star review. Um, five-star doesn't mean you agree with everything we say. Basically, it's like a thumbs up or thumbs down. If you give something less than five stars, it drags the score down. And just the way people's minds work, anything less than like 4.8, 4.9, people are like, oh, maybe that's not so good. So if you like us at all, please leave a five-star to offset the jerks who leave one-star reviews because they're bitter, hate listeners. Uh on the subject of access to the podcast, eventually there may come a day where we do get censored by some of the podcast listings. As we mention every week, we have show notes. There's a website, if you weren't aware, stone-choir.com. You can always find the episodes there. If you happen to be listening on the web, you should also know that you can find us in a podcast player, which is a way better listening experience. On the website, you can look, if you just go to stone-choir.com, right beneath the graphic where we have our little brief info, we have a URL for the RSS feed for the podcast. The reason that's important is that even if we were to get kicked off of every podcast platform in the universe, if you feed that RSS URL into your podcast player manually, you'll still automatically get the episode. So I would recommend if you're using a player, you get that RSS feed from the website, take a minute and manually add it, and then maybe delete the one from the regular podcast playback so you only get one a week. And that way you just never have to worry about it. If on the other hand, you know, we do get censored and you don't do that, you can always find us on the website. So just please remember those options exist. You'll always be able to get us through the RSS feed or online. So don't forget that. And if we disappear someday, it's not because we went anywhere it's because somebody's trying to shut us down on the subject of not going anywhere we're going to take a summer break for just a couple of weeks um i need to get my laptop repaired before it gets out of warranty it's almost three years old and so there are a couple of things i need fixed so i can keep it going for years to come this is just a good time because we've been doing this is episode 36 we've done these almost continuously every week so we could use a brief break so for the next two weeks there will not be any new episodes I'd recommend going back and listening to some of the previous ones if you're jonesing. Uh, if you didn't happen to start at the beginning, it's worth it. There's an arc through a lot of what we say. Or just go back to, and listen to one of your favorite, favorite episodes. They do have a lot of listening value. And one last thing, just to plug another podcast while you're not going to have access to us for a couple weeks. Corey also narrates the Bible daily on confident.faith. Uh, dot faith is a top level domain, so just confident dot faith. You can look that up on uh, your podcast player or on the web and find it. Every day he dubs Bible readings from the lectionary as well as readings from the Lutheran Confession. So 
He's an outstanding narrator. He has a great voice for this stuff, unlike me. Well worth listening to every day. It's 15 minutes a day. It's just a really nice little Bible study while you're doing something else. So add that to your podcast player if you haven't yet, because it's really valuable. So on to today's episode, we're going to begin just briefly by rewinding back to one of the things we touched on earlier by talking a little bit about Jews and banking. Uh, we had mentioned the spiritual nature of usury in, I think it was about episode five, On uh, we are talking about forgotten doctrines, and we spent a little bit of time in that discussing the fact that usury scripturally means any charging of interest, any lending at interest. It's not excessive interest, it's any interest at all. If you hand somebody $100 and you spec $105 back, you are a usurer. And historically, you would have been executed for that because it was a damnable sin. Still a damnable sin. It's no longer a crime. So historically, the Mosaic Jews, the, the faithful Jews of the Old Testament, those who were faithful, never engaged in usury of any sort. They never lent at interest because God forbade it which is, we mentioned in that episode, is something that was continued in Christendom up until the Middle Ages. It uh, wasn't, really wasn't almost Luther's day that we began to get to the modern conception that, sure, interest is okay, just not too much. Then, you have, then you're doing usury, and that's bad. The history of Jews and banking is interesting because it kind of lays the groundwork for everything else that we're going to talk about in today's episode. So I just wanted to briefly rewind back to the Babylonian exile that we talked about last week. When the Jews were in exile in Babylon in modern-day Iraq in the, you know, the 500 years or so leading up to Christ's birth, we mentioned that they began adopting practices like uh, witchcraft. You know, they, obviously, the Jews had engaged in witchcraft at least as far back as Egypt, but there was also a lot of that going on in Babylon. We know that many of the black magic practices, the evil practices, were amplified in Babylon. Even things maybe they weren't doing, they started doing. Lending at interest is another thing that they picked up in Babylon. So beginning during that exile, they began to basically act as a banking body. And the first place that this shows up is, fascinatingly, the temple. I didn't know this until I was looking at it, but money changer, you know, when we think about Jesus cleansing the temple of the money changers, we think about you know, money for pigeons and the the annual tax to the temple that was given. And so the money changers have to receive whatever money they had and then give them a Hebrew shekel to be put in, put in the coffers of the temple. And so we think it was all just sort of a natural above board thing. But in reality, that was sort of the first visible element of Jews in banking. And there's actually records in the Apocrypha, in fact, of the Jews engaging in banking prior to Jesus' day. Uh, in Second Maccabees, there's an account of a man named Simon the Benjaminite. He had been a temple guard. He had a falling out with the high priests, and he went to the rulers, the, the secular rulers, and said, hey, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem is full of uncountable quantities of gold and silver. You should go take that because it's not on the books as being allocated for sacrificial and ceremonial purposes. And a man named Heliodorus went and was dispatched to the temple, and he went to the high priest and said, I'm here to inspect. I heard there was a lot of money here. And the high priest basically started wailing and said, no, all the money in there is 
There's only a little bit, and it's all dedicated for orphans and widows. And oh, there's one rich guy, and so we have we have this amount of money that will be maybe unusual, but it's actually just because we're holding this one rich guy's money. Nothing else to worry about. And Heliodorus said, "Oh, well, I'm going to go check." And basically, the in Second Maccabees, Second Maccabees cap, chapter three, I believe, describes how the high priest got everyone in the neighborhood, all the everyone in around the temple worked into a frenzy at the prospect of this man, this Gentile, this pagan entering the temple, which was God's holy place. This was prior to the destruction of the temple, was prior to Jesus' day. So it was the God was still present there. Now it's not clear from the text to what degree they were freaking out at the Gentiles getting a hold of their statue of gold versus just entering the temple, which was forbidden and was frankly was blasphemous. When he got near the temple, a supernatural event occurred, and he was basically beaten back by three figures that uh, basically beat him unconscious, and he was dragged away, and he adopted the Jewish faith as a result of that. So the account is that it was supernatural. I believe that. Now, whether the supernatural intervention to keep him from looking inside the temple for this money was protecting the money or protecting the temple, I think would determine whether the supernatural element was God or demons. I, I will assume for the sake of charity that it was God, and he was keeping this man who was not a believer out of the temple, because that was the law. But it's interesting that just like all the modern congressmen who try to get into Fort Knox and inspect where the gold is, he never got in there. He never got to look at it. So the story that the high priest told about it being all donations for widows and orphans was all we all we know. It's interesting, if you do the math, in Exodus 30, there's a temple tax that is obligated to every adult Jewish male, I believe above the age of 20. Once a year, he has to give half a shekel to the temple, which is a nominal amount, uh, depending on how you do the math for inflation and the expected value at the time. It's probably between about maybe six and forty dollars today roughly either way it's not a huge amount but if you have one to two million jews a year showing up and paying that into the temple you're looking at somewhere between maybe a dozen million and 60 to 70 million dollars worth of silver a year being put in the temple and this was the second temple this was built you know five 500 bc it was finished so they weren't paying a mortgage on this thing. This was just all money coming in. Now, they had expenses, obviously, but it's not at all unbelievable that there would have been vast quantities inside the temple. And that's a big piggy bank. That's, you know, anyone anyone who is ever confronted with access to cash, there's potentially the temptation to do something bad with it. So I just find it interesting that that accusation would have been leveled. They never found out. But if you look at the math, it's entirely believable that there was perhaps more there than should have been. So after the fall of the temple, when the Jews were became the diaspora and they were basically scattered from Rome, many more of them moved into Babylon, what later became Iraq. And we know from antiquity that they continued to engage in banking practices. And as they learned when they were in the Babylonian captivity, they just became better at it. And banking meant both, you know, stashing cash, loaning cash, and then lending cash at interest. 
when the caliphate came about, when when Islam arose, the caliphate, you know, had a, had a stronghold where the Jews were. They did not lose their rights to engage in that sort of banking, and so there will be a link in the show notes to the Jewish Virtual Library, where I got some of the pointers to some of this data. But it's just interesting as you look at them. You know, th- this is this is a Jewish website. They're bragging which is part of why it makes it a reliable source, is that they're just talking about how great it was that Jews have always been engaged in banking. And so they trace this line, you know, being in Babylon through, you know, modern-day Baghdad and surrounds. And they discuss the fact that when the Muslims came along, they continued to, and in fact, enhance their reach into government. And there was simultaneously, of course, the diaspora into Europe. And so... Their records as far back as the 5th century AD, where we have the Merovingian kings and the early Roman church at that point, also already beginning to take loans from Jews. Because, of course, throughout the history of Christendom up until the Middle Ages, usury was forbidden. You, It was a crime for a Christian to lend at interest. And starting as, as early as the 400, 400 and 500 AD, we find that Jews were permitted in Christian lands to engage in criminal behavior for Christians. And so, you know, the Jewish Virtual Library agrees with what, you know, today is considered a trope or a stereotype or, you know, it's it's an anti-Semitic lie to say that Jews and banking are synonymous. The history of banking is basically the history of Jews in the West. That's not an insult. Now, if you believe that usury is a sin, that's a problem. But to say that Jews in banking is just synonymous, it's simply reality. And so roughly between the the 12th and 15th centuries, Jews pretty much had a complete monopoly on lending in Christian lands. And most of that lending was not done to the common man. It was done principally to kings and to the church, which obviously has a corrosive influence. And many of the wars that are fought in early European history are financed by lending from Jewish bankers. And so that kind of dovetails with the rest of this episode today, that wherever we have found historically Jewish presence in Christian lands, we find them engaging in behaviors that are deemed sinful and not Christian, but we go along with it because there's some upside. But the upside is ultimately morally pernicious. There would have been fewer European wars if those kings couldn't have financed it. Now, the kings bear the culpability for borrowing the money for fighting a war if it was not a just war. But if they hadn't been able to borrow the money from Jews, some of those wars wouldn't have been fought, or they wouldn't have been fought for as long, or for the same reasons. And so that's one of the things we want to get across in today's episode, is that these these effects are pernicious, because ultimately usury is sinful, lending at interest is sinful. Again, we make that case in one of the earlier episodes, but as a scriptural fact, this was recognized throughout Christendom until the Middle Ages. And so wherever you had usury, it was principally for misconduct. It was for the aggrandizement of a church that was increasingly not focused on spiritual matters, as was more focused on grandiose pomp and on political power, and then on kings who were pursuing political power. And we mentioned last week with the Inquisition and the Conversos that on this on this very website, and we talked a little bit about how the Conversos were Jews 
who were forced to be baptized and forced to convert to Christianity. And the Inquisition was pursuing whether or not they had actually truly converted. On the Jewish Virtual Library website, there's a couple paragraphs talking about how many of the Jews in Spain used their baptism as an entree into higher echelons of power. They're very open about the fact that they falsely converted to Christianity. They pretended to be Christians so that they could have enhanced banking contacts and therefore enhanced power, enhanced influence. In fact, the Nina Pinta and Santa Maria, when they came to the what you know we today know as the United States, you know, we're recording this episode on July 4th on Independence Day. That was funded not by Queen Isabel of Spain, but it was funded by one of her Jewish financiers. He was very powerful, and he wanted to get it done. And so it was actually Jews who sent that mission to the New World. Now, they thought they were going to India. They didn't think they were going to find the Americas, but that's just an example of how the converso false baptism getting into banking and enhanced access for banking it's a part of European history. It's just inescapable. And it's, you know, as we said last week at some length, it's okay for us as Christians to say, this is what happened. These are just historical facts. It's not calling anyone names. I mean, the fact that Jewish banking is effectively redundant, if you go look at that webpage, it's very long. It has tons and tons and tons of names and dates and places. And all of it leads to the inexorable conclusion that wherever there's banking in Christendom, it's always been Jews. And so if anything bad ever happens with banking, there's almost always been a Jew involved, period. And as we said last week, it doesn't mean hate them. It doesn't mean we're just going to be angry and hateful. It's just, it's literally what happened. And so one of the important reasons that we want to tackle this subject is that we can't talk about our own history as Christians, as Europeans, without talking about the impact that Jews have had on that history. This is going to be one of those episodes that maybe seems a little bit scattershot. And that's in part because this is going to be a rough overview. This is not going to be drilling down into the details of everything because this is going to span a fair chunk of time. Not as much as the last episode. The last episode was a little heavier on history. This time we're touching more on the ideology behind this history? What drove the Jews to do the things they have done in history? And banking ties into that very well. As you were discussing the history of banking, I thought that really it ties in directly to sort of the overall theme of this entire series of episodes, but in particular this episode and perhaps also the next one in three weeks, and that is Tikkun Olam. And tikkun olam is a Hebrew phrase that is usually translated repairing the world, which is relatively accurate. Tikkun is to repair, it's repairing. Olam, however, needs a little more explanation because the Hebrew language is a very limited language, particularly ancient Hebrew. Modern Hebrew, as we've mentioned before and we'll get into a little bit in this episode as well, most likely, is a constructed language. It is more expansive than ancient Hebrew. It can express more ideas more clearly. But ancient Hebrew is very limited. It is a tiny language. It has a small vocabulary. 
you have to use words to mean a lot of different things because you don't have very many words. As opposed to, say, German or English, which have massive vocabularies, there is always a word to express, if not the precise idea you need, then a couple of words together to express that precise idea. Olam has a large lexical scope. It can mean the world. It can mean eternity. It can mean everything. And so you need to keep that in mind when you hear Tikkun Olam. It means repairing everything. Now, if you look into Kabbalah and things like that, you'll see that more clearly. I don't think we'll really touch on that in this episode, partly because no one should spend any time looking into Kabbalah. You're just inviting demons into your life. So don't do that. But the idea of Tikkun Olam is the Jewish idea that human beings bear a responsibility to improve the world. Now, at first, to a Christian, that sounds great, because as Christians, we have a responsibility to improve the world. In fact, that was one of the things that we were originally supposed to do in the garden. We were gardeners. That was a big part of what humanity was originally meant to do, represent God in creation. That's what it means to be an icon or an image of God, same word. But also, by being a gardener, you are taming, subduing creation, improving things. God gave us work to do. He didn't do all the work for us. And so it sounds like something that is perhaps Christian, but it is very much not Christian. In the modern context, Tikkun Olam has become social justice. Now, it's been that for quite some time, actually. You see the roots of that back in the Enlightenment, which is where we'll be really properly starting this history after I explain the rest of this concept here. And so it's actually anti-Christian in the conception, the Jewish conception of Tikkun Olam. And that is because the Jewish conception, partly Kabbalistic, but partly the Haskalah, which is the Jewish Enlightenment, we'll be getting into that. Their idea is that God is incapable of doing these things. Some of them will say that God refuses to do them, and so it falls to men in the Kabbalistic understanding. They are working to perfect something that is imperfect in the essence of God, which is almost blasphemous just to say, but of course, the Jewish God is not God, so I'm not talking about imperfection in the Lord God, but in the Jewish God, who is in fact quite imperfect. But that is what is underlying all of this throughout this entire history of the Jewish people. There is this drive to remake the world. It is a revolutionary spirit, a desire to see things remade in an image that suits the Jews. And banking ties into that, because banking is one way in which you can wield a great deal of power, and conveniently you can wield a great deal of power without ever having to pick up a sword, which historically, after the time of the Maccabees at least, the Jews have not been a people very inclined toward actually picking up weapons of war and going to war. Now, murder and such very much been a part of Jewish history. We will see that in the various revolutions. We've seen that in previous revolutions. But actually forming an organized military and doing something on a battlefield, not becoming of the Jewish people of late. However, if you are the one who controls the purse strings, you can influence the one who directs the sword. Now, of course, power is power, and gold is not power. But you can buy power with gold, or you can influence the person who has power with gold. 
And that is how banking works. And we will see that perhaps most starkly when we eventually get to our episode on the world wars. Because it is the banking power that plays probably the most significant role in the world wars. But to return, as I said, to properly the start of the history in this episode, we move into the Enlightenment, because that is essentially where we left off with the last episode. We left off in the Middle Ages, the end of the Middle Ages, the early modern period, leading into the Enlightenment. And so the European Enlightenment lasted from, it depends on who you ask, it lasted either from the mid-1600s to the early 1800s, and that would be the death of Kant in that conception is considered the end of the Enlightenment period, or, and I think this is probably a better conception for political purposes, for intellectual purposes the first definition is probably best, but for political purposes it is generally considered historically to have begun with the death of Louis XIV in 1715 and ended with the beginning of the French Revolution in 1789. But alongside this European Enlightenment, we've gone into that previously, we'll perhaps go into it in more depth in a future episode, but alongside the European Enlightenment, there was a Jewish Enlightenment, which was called the Haskalah. That was from the mid-1700s to the late 1800s, so roughly the same time, very large overlap here. And you have a group of individuals in various places, basically schools, or little revolutionary groups as they would become, but initially ideological groups, discussing the ideas of enlightenment, so-called. In part, what you have here is an ideological civil war between an older strain of thought amongst the Jewish people and what would eventually become Zionism. And Zionism, of course, as you can probably guess, one, the older strain of thought that had been more or less ascendant for some time was assimilationist. And the assimilationists argued that essentially the Jews should fit in with their host societies, at least to the extent of appearing to be members of those societies. Now, they maintained their Jewish customs and practices and such in secret many times, sometimes openly, but many times in secret. But in large part, they blended into the society. Part of it was simply mercenary. It was to avoid persecution. But part of it was simply to live alongside the people alongside whom they were living. The Zionists, on the other hand, which is what you really see ascendant in these groups, the Maskilim, part of the Haskalah, they don't want to live alongside their European hosts, as it were, in peace. They want Jewish nationalism, they want Jewish identity, they want to be distinctly other from the societies in which they are living. And eventually this pushes toward once again having a state called Israel. It is important here to note where some of these major schools were, because this will lead into I'm not going to bury the lead. This will lead into revolutions shortly hereafter. Four of the main schools were located in Berlin, Vienna, Austria, Galicia, which for those who are unfamiliar with the history, Galicia would essentially be modern-day part of Poland and part of Ukraine, and Russia. 
these are four of the nations, European, well, three nations in one area, where we are going to see some of the most violent Marxist communist uprisings in the 1800s. Three of them in the 1800s. Russia has some abortive revolutions throughout the 1800s, and then really obviously it's the communist revolution that ultimately topples the traditional Russian society. It takes longer in Russia for various political and economic reasons, quite frankly. But these schools form the basis of those uprisings. It is these schools that provide the ideology that eventually pushes for these Marxist uprisings, for these, in some cases, mass movements of peasants to overthrow their so-called overlords. These are communist revolutions spurred on by Jewish intellectuals who are directly the direct ancestors ideologically of modern-day Zionism. And what's interesting about calling them communist revolutions, and indeed they are, is that they are communist in every detail prior to Das Kapital having been written. These are because, of course, Marx was a Jew as well. He didn't invent that from cold cloth. Basically, the Communist Manifesto and the other things that were downstream or that we see as being upstream from all the communist things that followed were, in fact, essentially the distillation of Tikkun Olam for the Goyim. So these Jews had been working on this revolutionary project for, you know, 100 plus years at this point, specifically within Europe. And as they delivered the blueprints to these Europeans, the reason that the same pattern emerges over and over is that it's it's ancient. It's an ancient pattern. As, as Corey said, it's the Tikkun Olam pattern for you know social justice, for workers' rights, like all these things today that we hear and we think, oh yeah, there's some good to that. I can I can baptize that and make it Christian. Communism is older than the first men who called themselves communists, and it wasn't just about a commune. It was about all of these values being packaged up and delivered and spread in, through these schools, influencing people. And I think one of the important things about banking having led up to this point is that as Jews became the merchant class, as they were traders and bankers, basically the white-collar sort of echelon of society, they accumulated a disproportionate amount of wealth because those are those are more capitalist endeavors that naturally tend to produce more excess capital. And so, of course, by having access to their own banks, they were able to accumulate that wealth and then deploy it both as a, as a weapon strategically at certain points to, you know, instigate, you know, to fund a particular uprising. But also, if you're wealthier, people are more likely to want to be around you for the most part. It opens doors. When you have money, people are nicer to you. Not everyone, but the people that you probably want to rub elbows with tend to be. And so as they accumulated social status through the accumulation of wealth, as Corey said, they sort of just became European. Even while maintaining their Jewish identities, it was a side-by-side, -side, I'm a German Jew, or I'm a Russian Jew, or I'm a Polish Jew. And they wanted to be both simultaneously to pursue Jewish ends in their host countries. And the 
we'll we'll talk a little bit about the divergence of of Zionism and integration because they both serve the same ultimate ends via different means. And so I think it's one of the confusing things today when you look at at Jews, you'll see some who are rabidly pro-Israel, and you also find Jews who are supporting the plight of Palestinians. Now, they never support the Palestinian Christians, but they'll support the Palestinian Muslims. And so it seems like they're two different kinds of Jews that have these very diametrically opposed beliefs when, in fact, they have the same ultimate goal. They're just sort of working both sides of the equation for their goals. And that's something that occurs throughout history. I would hope that when you mentioned that wealth tends to increase one's influence or social circle, that a proverb would have come to mind for the listeners. And that, of course, is Proverbs 19.4. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. And you mentioned that Sometimes people try to baptize something and make it Christian. And in this case, you really see a lot of this with Tikkun Olam generally, but there's one thing in specific to which I want to draw attention. And the reason I want to draw attention to this is that I see some Christians, but in particular pastors, committing a grave, a gross error, and borrowing a concept from Judaism, from the Talmud, that has no place in Christianity. And see if you can pick up on the word when I read through. This is part of the Jewish liturgy, the Alainu part of that. Let the time not be distant, O God, when all shall turn to you in love, when all the brokenness of our world is repaired by the work of our hands and our hearts. And so many of you will have picked up on the word there. There are actually two words, but one I have to translate so that you'll see it. There's a word there in English that you will hear come out of the mouth of many pastors and others these days. And it is directly a concept from the Talmud. It has no place in Christianity. And that is brokenness. People will speak of individuals being broken or of the brokenness of our world or the brokenness of sin. This is not Christian. This is Talmudic. This is wicked. This is pagan. It has no place in the mouth of a Christian, and you should rebuke anyone who uses it. Where that comes from, before I get to the second instance here, the second term, the idea of brokenness comes in part from the Talmud directly, but part through Kabbalistic interpreters of the Talmud, particularly some in Russia. The names aren't relevant here because, again, not something into which you should really look deeply. Again, this would be inviting demons into your life. But, to just let you know what is going on here, there is a Kabbalistic understanding, as I stated earlier, that God himself, in his essence, is broken in a way. It essentially comes from their corrupted version of a creation myth where God withdrew his light from a part of reality and that created the world and then through sin and corruption there's brokenness that enters in and through prayer and meditation you can restore some of the broken essence of god that's the rough overview of it yes it's as blasphemous as evil and it's as it sounds but that's the idea that is being imported into christianity by those who are using the term brokenness so stop using that term 
it is blasphemous. But the second instance here is what is rendered as the brokenness being repaired by the work. Well, that's tikkun olam. That's the words there. That's what's being prayed by the Jews. And you'll note that it's of our hands and our hearts. It's this arrogant conception that we are the ones who will repair what is broken and wrong in the world. We are the ones who will remake the world in our image. This should start to sound like a particular character in Scripture who says that he will ascend above the Most High and make his throne in the heavens. That's not God. But it is the God of the Jews. For a Christian, the specific terms that should be used instead are evil instead of brokenness, sin and evil. <clears throat> and in terms of repairing the world, that's sanctification. That comes from God alone. And this is where the breakdown occurs. And the reason that this is so crucial is that when you look at, for example, press releases from some of our own churches, when they talk about things related to civil rights, they will use this exact framing in this exact terminology to talk about, you know, they may call racism a sin, an ancestral sin of this nation. You know, this the United States, the America was born with the original sin of racism. That's what some of our own false prophets say among us. And the fix for that, well, they'll, they'll throw Jesus in there. Ultimately, it's about them repairing that brokenness by going out and, and making people not be racist anymore. And when you when you carefully parse the way they say those things, it's clear that they're not talking about sanctification. They're not talking about God's work in our hearts and in our lives. They're talking about reshaping in the image of the world to just go down whatever the morality of CNN is and one by one deleting those things from people's hearts and minds coercively, if necessary, not through God's love and not through God's sanctification, but by, you know, whatever amount of persecution and hatred you can direct at these evils, that is how you create the unbroken world with your own hands. And so when these men believe these things, they will, of course, engage in any manner of evil because they don't think it's evil. They think that if if by their own hands they're healing the world of its brokenness, of these original sins that aren't even in Scripture, then of course anything goes. If, you're, if your ultimate goal is good to perfect the world, whatever you have to do to get there, you can rationalize. I mean, it's literally the end justifies the means. Now, it's buried. You're not going to see that when you read one of these press releases unless you look at it with these eyes. Once you understand that these things are alien to the Christian faith, then they just kind of scream from the page, both by the words that they use and by the things that they omit, by the fact that they won't talk about God sanctifying our hearts, something that today in, you know, in the Missouri Synod is explicitly denied in our newest confessional documents, saying that someone who commits the sin of sodomy, someone who is a child rapist, someone who despises the body that they were given by God and believes that they're the opposite sex and that God made a mistake, our new confessional documents say there's no sanctification for that. They say you can be forgiven, but you're always going to want those evil things because God can't do it. And so we just have to be loving and supportive socially to make people feel the embrace 
of God's love rather than reminding people that this is sin, this is wickedness, and that God heals. God forgives and he heals through forgiveness. You know, healing is a good thing when it's coming from God, but we don't heal each other. It comes from God and there's a specific pathway by which it's delivered to us. And it's not through through these views. So it's it's a really tricky thing because as we've said in many past episodes, this stuff, if you don't realize it's evil genealogy, it's going to look and sound pretty Christian. Maybe it's a slightly different way of putting it, but when you get down to it, who doesn't want brokenness to be healed? Who doesn't want things to be better? And if I'm a Christian, of course, I want to be the one making things better. And there's a way that a Christian can believe that faithfully that doesn't sound like that, because the actual repair of evil comes from God's work and God's forgiveness. And as we've said in a couple of recent episodes, there are things that are evil in this world that cannot be repaired. They can be forgiven, but they can't be undone. And I think that's one of the overarching reasons why we have many men in our own pulpits talking in these ways, because they they think that anything can be repaired, and it's simply not true. If you sin against your own body and you damage it in, in a horrific way, you're stuck with it. God's not going to regrow whatever you cut off. He's not going to undo whatever damage you do. That is the new you. It's not the you that's going to be resurrected, because if you are forgiven and you die in Christ, you will be raised again with a restored body, the body that God wanted you to have, but you don't just get to undo all of the damage from your own wicked acts. It's something that came up in you know, the debt-free virgins with no tattoos fight a few years ago, where there were Christian men saying, there are things that we can do when we're young that can damage our prospects forever, and it's desirable for us to encourage those things, and it's desirable for us to discourage things that are sinful, things that are harmful. Pastors want to focus, pastors who are, some are trying to be faithful and some are malicious, will try to say, no, we need to repair everything. If you have, if someone has had sex with a hundred people, she can, she's forgiven by Jesus. And so everything is back to normal. We talked about in the episode where we were discussing the clockwork universe in microchimerism, that's simply not the case. There's physical and emotional and mental damage to that sort of behavior that God forgives, but he doesn't undo. And for us to think that we can go further than what God does in this life is sinful. It's, it's rebellion against God. Because while it begins with, oh, I want to do something Christian, it ends with, God didn't do enough, I'm going to fix what he failed to fix, which is exactly Corey's point. And one of the foundations upon which this, not really misconception, this wickedness, this evil is built, is a denial of original sin. And that is something that we see in the Christian context as well. Groups that deny the reality of original sin will eventually wind up apostate. Because if you deny the reality, if you deny the nature of original sin, what you've actually done, even if you haven't explicitly done so yet, what you have implicitly done is deny the nature of the atonement. Because if original sin did not corrupt all of creation, if original sin is not this infinite separation of creation from creator, then Christ's atonement is something lesser than it actually was. 
the Jews here are explicitly denying what Scripture says, even their Scriptures, so-called, because supposedly they believe in the Torah. They don't. They believe in the Talmud. We've previously gone over what Torah forbids, Talmud permits. But what they are doing is denying the nature, the scope, the reality of original sin and saying, no, we can cure these things through our own works. We don't need God to do it for us. And there are Christian groups that do the very same thing. And so as Christians, you have to be careful to ensure that you always have this proper conception of original sin, of what original sin is, of what original sin did, of what was necessary to atone for original sin. This is one of those things that if you get it wrong, you may not wind up apostate, but your grandchildren almost certainly will. And in the case of the Jews, we see exactly that playing out. But I mentioned earlier these four schools, as it were, these four groupings of the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, the Maskilim is the name for the actual individuals or the groups, that is plural. But I mentioned where these were, and the reason that's relevant is that these are where revolutions would take place in the 1800s. And we've mentioned before, I believe I've linked to it before in the show notes for previous episodes, in fact, I know I have, the revolutions of 1848. And it's interesting to note that there is an entire article on the revolutions of 1848, because most of Europe was thrown into turmoil seemingly all at once. To just give a quick list of some of the revolutions, not even all of them, there were revolutions in the Italian states. There was a French Revolution of 1848. Obviously not the French Revolution, but there was a French Revolution. There were German revolutions of 1848. Denmark had an uprising in 1848-1849. Schleswig-Holstein had an uprising, or actually just at the time would have been Schleswig, not Holstein yet, but there were uprisings in Austria. There were uprisings in Hungary. Galicia, as mentioned, Sweden had uprisings, Switzerland, Poland, Romania, Belgium. This was pan-European. And the hot spots focused exactly where you had these Jewish groups that would eventually become Zionism. And what you see as a follow-on from this, as a result of this, Sometimes it takes a few decades in the aftermath of these revolutions, but sometimes it doesn't. You see the emancipation of the Jews. Jews are given full political, civil, etc. rights in these various European nations. The first, of course, is France, because the French Revolution grants full rights to the Jews, and that is in 1789. Now, notably... There are many of those in the French Revolution who say that they have to cease to be Jews and simply be French in order to have these rights. But there is some disagreement amongst the leaders of the French Rebellion, the French Revolution. Unsurprising for anyone who's familiar with the history of the French Revolution, as the leaders of that revolution were anything but consistent one year to the next. 
And to follow on from that, you have, basically in the, the decades following, you have all of these various European nations emancipate the Jews. But the last to emancipate the Jews was Germany in 1871, and then Russia in 1917. Now, of course, 1917 should ring some bells as well. And that is another time in the early 1900s. Of course, we have the First World War. As a direct follow-on from the First World War, which incidentally, the same hotspots, again, involved in the lead-up to that war, but in the aftermath of that war, that is when we get sort of mass democracy and the emancipation of women and votes for women and all of these various liberal social agenda items that get pushed through that were being discussed previously by these Jewish groups. So you will see every time you have this sort of mass uprising and these rivers of blood in Europe, conveniently what follows on from that is the ratchet moving forward in favor of social liberalism. One of the interesting things about the timing of everything that you just mentioned is that it dovetails with the end of kind of the banking story for Jews. It dovetails into what became modern banking. I'm going to read just a part of a paragraph from the Jewish Virtual Library. Jewish banking in the 19th century begins with the rise of the House of Rothschild in Frankfurt, a city which became the new banking center of Europe as a result of the political upheaval caused by the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. The founder of the house, which became the symbol of the 19th century type of merchant banking, Meyer Amschel Rothschild, started as a banker to the elector of Hesse Castle. His sons rose in prominence as the major European bankers, Amschel Meyer in Frankfurt, Solomon Meyer in Vienna, Karl Meyer in Naples, James Meyer in Paris, and Nathan Meyer in London. And so between 1815 and 1828, the total capital of the Rothschilds increased from 3.3 million to 118 million francs. It went up over 30-fold in just over a decade. And that's just ending in 1828. Obviously, they didn't end there, but that was basically their seed money for what just 20 years later began became all these revolutions in 1848. And as we've said, there, there are articles and you can find lists. And one of the tricks when you're going through accounts of this stuff, particularly if you're starting on modern internet sources, is that they will obfuscate or flat out deny that there's any participation of Jews. A lot of these on Wikipedia, a lot of these articles have actually had references to Jews removed in the last three years or so. However, if you dig into who were the principal leaders in any particular revolution, as Corey said, you're going to find it's at least half Jews. In most of the revolutions in both 1948 and then in 1917-18, some of them were up to 90% Jewish, which necessarily implies that if it were not for Jews, those things wouldn't have happened. That's just that's a historical fact. Because not only were they key players, in many cases, virtually all of the players, this was true in the, in the Russian Revolution, so-called, it was a communist revolt, it was a Jewish communist revolt, not only were they the overwhelming majority of those participating, 
But for example, in the Jewish Revolution in Russia, Rothschild personally donated a million, I don't remember which which currency it was, but a huge amount of money was infused into that communist uprising right as it was sort of faltering. They got a fresh infusion of cash from a Rothschild, and there you go. The czars are dead. Russia's communist for nearly a century. So the banking tie-in, all this is sort of the end of it being a part of the story, it's important because as they spread their tentacles throughout Europe, this influence and this incredibly outside, and so we're talking about quantities of money that are just inconceivable beyond what the average man would have access to. Yet when it's a group of people who are able to influence kings and leaders and schools and crowds, incidentally, doesn't that kind of sound like George Soros today? You know, if you think about what we're describing, you know, the Rothschilds and these other doing 200 years ago, we see exactly the same thing today with, you know, different names. You know, Soros is, uh, that last name is uh, Esperanto. It means sore in Esperanto. His original name was Georgi Schwartz. He was a, a Jew. Everyone knows that Soros is a Jew. But he changed his name to something that didn't sound that way. He's the front man for doing this stuff today. There's always been a front man. There's always been someone behind financing things. And as, as I said earlier, and we said in the previous episode, when you say these things, people want to clutch their pearls and say, oh, this is an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Well, let's start with, is it true or not? And not only is it true, but when you get them talking in a way that they're proud of it, they'll take credit for everything. It's not internet racists whining about disparities in bank accounts. It's literally just history. These events occurred. These are the men responsible. And they came from a place and they had an agenda. And it wasn't simply personal aggrandizement. The the manner in which these things played out, as Corey said, all the patterns, all the revolutions of 1848, when you read the articles, they'll say, oh, it... Everyone just revolted simultaneously for all these different reasons. Well, that's why you have to go looking at who is actually instigating it. And when you look at the reasons, even though some of the articles will say these reasons are all unrelated, when you go down the checkbox list of communist values, of Tikkun Olam, social justice checkboxes, all the, the list of things that they want to do to change and repair the world, it's all there. It's things like worker rights, and it's things like disparate capital allocation. You know, things that seem kind of either they're either you hear them and you think, I don't care, that's you know, that sounds technical and dry, or you think it's a moral imperative. When they're doing it, it's because it was fundamentally toppling the kingdoms, the kingdoms of Christendom, because don't forget, these were aristocracies and they were monarchies. And by the end of the sec of the First World War, all those monarchies had been toppled. There was really no political power left in virtually any of the European kingdoms. Even if they maintained something that was superficial, it no longer had any teeth. That wasn't the case, you know, in 1848 when this project began, or if you go back further, you know, to 1789 in France. The toppling of the Christian rulers and the liberalization of the societies and the loosening of morals and the opening of floodgates for all sorts of things that stop being illegal because, well, we don't want to, you know, that's that's going too far. We don't need all these Christian rules informing the law. Today, 
in 2023 in the United States. This is a fight that we're having in our own churches. How far does a Christian ruler go with regard to what Scripture says about obeying God? What should the laws look like? This is a conversation that began in the Enlightenment. And so all of these intermediary steps along the way, they achieve the goal. They achieve the goal of what we call liberalization. You know, that's, I guess that's the technical term. It's fundamentally satanic terraforming of Christendom. That's really what's happened here. And when you look at the movers and shakers, you look at the players, you look at the men who were calling the shots and influencing people, they're almost all Jews. One of the things that I said near the end of last week's episode was that one of the areas in Europe with the highest percentage Jewish population was what has been sometimes known as Poland. Today, most of this area is Poland, some of it is Ukraine, just depends on the point in history, since Poland has existed and then not existed and then existed again. But the area known at the time as Galicia, I did mention that there was one of these Haskalah there, one of these groups of Jewish intellectuals. And in 1846, there occurred what is known as the Galician Peasant Uprising. This was an uprising in which today they are often called patriotic Polish intellectuals and nobles, but in reality they were Marxist revolutionaries in the most part, in the main. Not all of them. Some of them were deluded, certainly. That does happen as well. You see that pattern repeated over and over again, actually, with revolutionaries. You will have those who are malicious in their intent, those who know what they're doing, and then the fools who go along with them. In the Soviet era, the, the term was useful fool or useful idiot, which is those in the West who argued in favor of what the Soviets were doing because they did not understand what the Soviets were doing. They were useful idiots. I'll refrain from using the Russian term because I'm sure I'll butcher the pronunciation. But the Galician uprising basically slaughtered many of the nobles, some of whom had foolishly involved themselves in the rebellion. But this was just a standard Marxist uprising, and it was praised by Marxists at the time, including Karl Marx, who I believe, I don't know if he had just been expelled from Belgium or if that was to come later, but at any rate, he praised this as a Marxist uprising, called it deeply democratic, of course. You have to be sure to get your propaganda term right. And this is the pattern that plays out over and over. You see a supposed peasant uprising, sometimes involving some of the nobles, because do bear in mind, the French Revolution was supposedly this uprising of the underclass that was going to throw off the shackles of the oppressive nobility of the ancient regime. Well, in reality, almost all of the leaders were relatively affluent, educated students. They were not peasants. But this is what you see play out. You have Marxist revolutionaries who rile up some segment of the population and use that segment of the population to slaughter others. And it just creates chaos and a cycle of violence that destroys the nation from within. Some European nations were more successful in putting down these revolutions than others. Some were not successful. The 
the Germans actually managed to put down the revolutions of 1848 fairly convincingly. However, things did not go as well in Germany during the latter cycle of revolutions because Germany had, I'll move on to Germany now to sort of set the stage for a future episode just to give a little bit more history here. The German revolutions, not of 1848, but the latter ones in the 1900s, really started in 1918, started in the wake, of course, of World War I. And they lasted until 1933. There were various revolutions throughout Germany. You had the so-called German Revolution, 1918 to 1919. In Germany, it's called the November Revolution because there are other revolutions in other months, and so they're named after the month. But you had a people's state of Bavaria, which most people don't know. Bavaria had an actual communist government for over a year. Saxony, the birthplace of Lutheranism, essentially had a communist government for over a year. Bremen was a Soviet republic in 1919. Bavaria, at the end of the People's State, also had a Soviet republic. There was an uprising, a communist Marxist uprising in the Ruhr in 1920. There was a March uprising in 1921. There was an uprising in Hamburg in 1923. There was the German October, which was an international communist plot to again attempt to overthrow, at that time, Weimar to institute an actual communist government in 1923. This is the state of Central Europe in the early 1900s, and it's important to understand that for other history we'll be covering in later episodes. But you see extensive Jewish involvement in these revolutions, because basically you have Marxist intellectuals and revolutionaries on one side, and the defenders of the old regime, the defenders of monarchy and order on the other side. And it is, in fact, Christians on the side of the monarchy, on the side of the nobles, on the side of order, versus atheists and Jews on the side of the Marxist revolutionaries. And this plays out in other European states as well, but for obvious reasons, Germany is the most salient going forward. But this is all part of the Jewish understanding of Tikkun Olam. It is part of the Jewish understanding that it is incumbent on them to make the world a better place. It just so happens to be that the world would be a better place if the world were ruled by Jews. And so they are willing to use whatever means necessary to bring this about. They will tell you that Tikkun Olam is just making the world better, improving things, helping people. But it's not. Because the goal is radical social change. The goal is to make the world look like the world portrayed in the Talmud. And if you've read any of the Talmud, or you've listened to what we've said about the Talmud, read a summary, what have you, you know how utterly wicked the Talmud is and what kind of world that would create. As was mentioned, this is Satan terraforming Christendom. And he has been extremely successful because Christians have not known how to counter it, particularly in the modern era, because Christians are so afraid simply to say the word Jews. And if you can't say the word Jews, you can't 
go over the history. You can't go over what has actually happened because they have played an outsized role. At no point have they ever, with the exception of what is now Poland, because as I said, they were higher concentration there, but even there it was sub 10%, they have never been more than single-digit percentages of a given population, and yet they have been represented as 50-plus percent of these revolutionary groups. In the case of the Russian revolutionaries, so-called Russian, 90-plus percent. That's salient. If you have a group that is a single-digit percentage of a population, and yet somehow it is always more than half of violent revolutionary groups that rise up in that population and cause chaos, that is something of which both the kingdom of the right hand and the kingdom of the left hand should take notice. It is incumbent on the kingdom of the left hand to crush those revolutionaries, but it is incumbent on the kingdom of the right hand, which is to say the church, to recognize this evil and to address it. Otherwise, the terraforming will continue, because it is continuing. That's what we see today. All of the things we see pushed for today, the social justice, the affirmative action, the BLM, whatever group it happens to be, these are all part of the same tapestry, cut from the same cloth of the Talmud, organized by the same malignant, malign intelligence. And as Christians, we have to address it, because things can always get worse. And if we're not trending Godward, then we are in fact trending hellward. In the show notes for today's episode, we will have a link to a book by a Roman Catholic author named E. Michael Jones. A lot of you have probably heard that name before. Uh, he wrote a trilogy of books on the overarching subject we're talking here today. The specific one that applies most directly to this arc of our episodes is the Jewish revolutionary spirit. So we'll link to, you can find it at archive.org. You can actually download the PDF. It's about 1,200 pages. It's a very lengthy, detailed book. Obviously, this is the most superficial possible tackling of the subject for a podcast. If you want to deep dive, get a PhD. What I found interesting when I, when I dug this up, I've never read the whole thing, but I've read bits and pieces. And most of what is in it, I have learned elsewhere. But I was just laughing when I, I pulled up the PDF today and looked at the chapters. Here are the names of the first five chapters from E. Michael Jones's book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Chapter one, The Synagogue of Satan. Chapter two, Julian the Apostate and the Doomed Temple. Chapter three, Rome discovers the Talmud. Chapter four, False Conversion and the Inquisition. Chapter five, The Revolution Arrives in Europe. Chapter six, The Converso Problem. And in later chapters, he talks about Martin Luther King Jr. He talks about the civil rights movement. If this sounds a little bit like it was basically the last, you know, 20-odd episodes of Stone Choir, it's not because we're using his book to crib for source material. It's because if you look at the problems in our world, in the Christian world and Christian nations, you will find the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Now, E. Michael Jones is, he's... Roman Catholic. He's a Romanist. He's a papist. That's what Luther calls you guys. And we have some listeners. Thank you for listening. We love you guys. You're obviously Christian because otherwise you wouldn't put up with us. It's I, I'm highlighting specifically that he is a Romanist because one of the things that you'll find in this book, if you happen to check it out, is that there's a fair amount about Freemasonry, which again ties directly into you know t today on Independence Day as we're recording. Obviously, Freemasonry was a big part of the American Revolution, 
And so we're told retroactively that that made Freemasonry the birth story of this nation, which is nonsense. This nation is 150 years older than the revolution. The nation began when Europeans started landing here. And the men who started landing here weren't Freemasons. They weren't involved in any of that stuff because the Enlightenment hadn't happened yet. And Quakers were not members of secret societies. So I, I specifically mentioned the Freemason thing because if you, if you delve into this or related subjects, I just want you to be aware that when Roman Catholics talk about these subjects, they will place an outsized emphasis on Freemasonry. Now, as Lutherans, we despise secret societies. In fact, from the very first days of the LCMS, no one who was a member of a secret society was permitted to be a member of the church because it, it's two contradictory gods. Freemasons and the other secret societies confess a, a creator god. They say that whether you're a Jew or a Mohammedan or a Christian, you're all worshiping the same god by different names. And it's interesting, if you listen to any accounts of someone who's gone through a Masonic temple, they will have rooms that are dedicated to different periods of time with different architecture and different decorations. And they will have a they'll have a room for Babylonian period. They'll have a, a room with Egyptian stuff. Which if you remember us talking about the genealogy of Jewish black magic, that's where the that's where black magic traces through. Through Babylon, through Greece, through Egypt, back to the very earliest days of demons walking the earth. And so the fact that Freemasons use exactly the same genealogy for their backstory, I think once you recognize that that pattern is something that will just pop up in places where black magic is being practiced, it's very conspicuous. Because whatever else they say about the God that they claim they're worshiping, when they are using the same terms and the same loci in human history as Kabbalah, as Muslim mysticism, as Egyptian demonology, that becomes consequential. You can't ignore that it's not random and it's not LARPing. It's not that they just like the you know the look of obelisks or whatever. There's something serious about it. And so, yes, Freemasons, evil. Even to this day, they, they always have been. There's never been a time when they were not up to no good. The important distinction between our position and someone like E. Michael Jones is that things like Freemasonry are, they're kind of like communism. It's a repackaged form of Jewish mysticism for the Goyim. I don't know if there were ever Jews and Freemasons. It, probably they were forbidden at some point because they didn't need to be there. But it was the same sort of stuff. When you trace it back far enough, it has the same values. You know, Freemasons are, are famous for good works. As, as Corey's describing Tikkun Olam, what is that but how Freemasons and Shriners and all these others talk publicly about what they want to do? It's about community improvement. It's about making things better. And as a naive listener, like, well, that's great. Who doesn't want more of that? When you delve into what they're actually doing behind the scenes, it's clear that they're all working from the same playbook. So Roman Catholics will place an outsized emphasis on Freemasons. As Lutherans, we have a problem with that because Jesuits do the same stuff. They'll always scream about Freemasons and they'll ignore Jesuits, who, by the way, show up in the same parts of history doing the same evil stuff as the rest. They're pretty much indistinguishable. And as Protestants, 
Jesuits were important because that was literally stood up to stamp out the Re- the Reformation. Rome, you know, the Jesuits were basically an inquisition against the Reformation to root out what they termed heretics, that's us, and kill them. And the, their, the Jesuit history involves assassination. So if, you, if you're listening to a Roman Catholic author and he starts going off about Freemasons, I would encourage you to focus on the fact that Freemasons are a derivation of Talmudic Judaism and not let him get you focused on the political stuff because it's all rooted in the same spiritual undertones, which is why it shows up in E. Michaels Jones' book about the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Now, I haven't read the exact chapter. Maybe he makes the case as well. But when I hear a lot of Roman Catholics talking about these subjects online, if you get them talking about Freemasons, they're just off to the races and they want to call America Freemason and all this stuff. The founders, many of them were. My ancestors, who were here 150 years prior, were not. America was not a Freemason country. It was a Christian nation. And it was the very Enlightenment devilry that was being ginned up both by atheists and agnostics and Jews in Europe and then imported at the time of the revolution in this country that did the damage to our founding. Whether or not we should have been our own country is a separate matter, but the manner in which it was done was not godly. And, you know, it's history at this point. Just don't get distracted when somebody starts freaking out about Freemasons. I would encourage you, if you want to look into this subject in more detail, it's well worth taking a look at E. Michael Jones' book. Even if you just delve into a particular chapter that deals with a specific topic you're interested in, it will give you a lot of details that will certainly be omitted in places like Wikipedia. You know, as I was reading through the article on the 1848 revolutions, Corey was talking a minute ago about patriots, and it was hilarious to see them describing, yes, the patriots killed their nobles, killed their king. Like, that's not patriotic. In what universe is that patriotic? Well, in a Jewish universe, we're overthrowing godly hierarchy is a high good. Yeah, that's certainly patriotic. But the men who were doing that in those places and times, they weren't patriots. They were they were evil, wicked men who were serving evil ends. And so when all these patterns play out, once you're able to name the source and see how it's playing out both within the context and more broadly throughout time, it becomes a lot easier for us as Christians to discuss these things openly and publicly and say, well, look, this is what happened. These people take credit for it. They did it. I have a problem with it morally. I'm looking at where they came from and the things that they're doing, and I have a problem with that. That's a perfectly reasonable place for a discussion. And Corey and I are podcasters. We want discussion. We're not calling for violence. We don't want violence. Part of the reason for discussing this stuff is to try to prevent violence Because the further and further the world gets into this sort of wickedness, the greater the incentive there is for the backlash against what is pure evil to just be pure violence. And if if violence is necessary, that should be done in a godly fashion by a godly state. That's not for individuals to ever pursue. If there are no Christians involved in the conversation, all you're going to have is people who are going to misidentify who the culprits are, and they're going to go further than any Christian should want them to go. And so that's part of the reason we're tackling these tough subjects, because the absence of actual Christian voices discussing these things that are emerging in real time, you know, we're 
we're talking about things in the early 1800s that are identical to things happening in 2023 and 2024 and beyond. This decade is going to play out like Germany 100 years ago. It already is. The par- it's not just parallel. It's it's practically like someone used a clone tool and just copied from one century to the next. That's bad news because the end result of that is going to be violence that no one should want to see. We don't want to see it. Wars are always destructive. Even a just war is destructive and evil. The question is whether it's less evil than the alternative. If no Christians discuss these things, all we're left with are evil alternatives. And any Christian should seek to prevent that if they're, it's if at all possible. If you want a good example of what happens when really no one involved is Christian, look at any number of wars that have been waged in the Far East in history and some of the atrocities that have been committed. That's what happens when men are entirely unbounded morally, when there are no restrictions. And that is what happens when Christians remove themselves from the conversation. There are no Christians on the left. There are no Christians on the Marxist side of this. And so the only Christians are on the right. And if Christians want to have an influence on the outcome of these events, because as was mentioned, we are living through right now, probably about the 1920s in Central Europe. We're living through the same thing all over again in the same decade, incidentally. Welcome back to the 20s. Not so roaring this time, but the 20s nonetheless. If Christians want to have an influence, not only in the outcome, but how we get there. And it is important to have an influence in the means if you want an influence on the ends. Then we have to be part of the discussion. And the only way Christians can be part of the discussion on the right is if we're honest, if we're blunt, if we speak the truth, if we're not afraid of touching on these subjects that are supposedly off-limits. In this case, for this series of episodes, if we're not afraid to say the word, Jews. Because if we're afraid to say these things, then those on the right who have been looking at these matters, granted through a secular so-called lens, not through a Christian lens, but have been looking at them and had arrived at the very clear truth, because some of these truths do not require a Christian lens to see them. You can find the Jewish involvement in Marxism, whether or not you're a Christian you can find the destructiveness of multiculturalism, whether or not you're a Christian. But if Christians, as has been the case for the last several decades, resolutely refuse to engage in these discussions, and particularly refuse to speak the truth on them, then both sides are going to completely ignore, at the absolute best, Christians. And usually what happens in that case is that Christians wind up dead. Because neither side has an incentive to keep Christians alive, if Christians are simply lying. The left, of course, because they are anti-Christ. They hate Christ. They want to destroy the church. And the best way to destroy the church on earth is to destroy Christians. It's not burning buildings. That is destructive, of course. But you can rebuild the buildings. If you kill the Christians, if you burn the scriptures, if you destroy all of those who have that knowledge, you can very effectively destroy the church on earth. 
God has promised that he will not permit the forces of evil to completely triumph, but that does not mean that they cannot triumph in an area for a period of time. Look at the map, the religious map of Europe, before and after World War II. Christendom died in that war. It was wounded almost mortally in World War I, certainly, but if you look at the percentage of those who were atheist 20 years on from World War II, the East is atheist, with some exceptions of those who claim to be Roman Catholic, but if you start asking them questions about what they believe, you'll find out very quickly most of them are atheist as well. So there are very real consequences here in time when it comes to these conflicts, and that's for the left. Now for the right side, the right, if Christians are simply going to lie, which has been the case for some decades, then they have no need of Christianity or Christ from their perspective. They're wrong, of course, ultimately, eternally wrong. But politically, they're not. Because politically speaking, if Christians are unwilling to address these issues, unwilling to speak the truth, unwilling to take Scripture seriously, incidentally, because Scripture does speak of speaking the truth before the powerful, and that doesn't just mean the gospel, because God is truth, so all truth belongs to God. The gospel is the most salient part of that, but none of it's irrelevant. But if we're not willing to do that, well, it shows a number of things. One, it shows we don't really believe. It shows that our faith isn't real. Because if Christians don't value the truth, if Christians aren't willing to speak the truth, then maybe we don't really believe in the truth. And so why should those on the political right care what Christians say? But there is also the matter of Christians are naturally on the political right because that is simply the side of God in these matters because the political right is the side that believes in family and hierarchy and all of these various things that are of God that are good from God and opposes all the evil things from the left the transgenderism the homosexuality multiculturalism etc ad nauseum but in order to be part of the right, in order to be an influential part of what is transpiring, whether or not we are part of it. We have to properly be Christians, which means, again, speaking the truth. It means not being afraid to address these problems. It means recognizing the reality of the situation in which we find ourselves. Because ultimately, the political right in the West should be Christian, top to bottom. That is how things should be, and that is how things would be if Christians were willing to speak the truth instead of being Zionists, as has been the case in the U.S. for far too long with many churches. That's not in Scripture. That's not scriptural. That's anti-scriptural. Where in Scripture does it command us to support a pagan nation, a nation that hates God, a nation that hates Christ, a nation that has banned proselytization. You can be arrested for attempting to spread the gospel in Israel. That's not Christian. That's not a nation we should support. And if we support that as Christians, what are we declaring to the world? What we're declaring is that we don't really believe in God. We don't really believe in Christ because we're willing to support this evil, wicked, pagan nation. Our confession before the world truly matters, and it truly matters today. 
because of what is coming in the next few decades. We don't want a repeat of what happened in Europe, although that is where we are heading today. We want Christianity to come out of this conflict in better shape, not as in Europe where Christianity, Christendom, effectively died in the 1940s and the 1950s. We have a very real opportunity as Christians in this century to see a revival of the church because God doesn't abandon his people. It has always been true. Scripture is very clear. If we desist in our evil ways and turn to God, he will turn to us. He will remember us. He will restore us. And so we very much have that opportunity as a nation. And yes, we mean as a nation. We're recording, as has been mentioned a number of times, on the 4th of July. Bear in mind, as we have said many times before, country and nation are not synonymous. Germany is not the 1945 Constitution. That's a country. Germany is a nation of the Germans. France is a nation of the French. Ireland is a nation of the Irish. America is properly a nation of the Americans, and we are a distinct Western European descended people. That is what Americans are. The U.S. is a country that is a different thing. And so as Christians, it is important for us to act in accord with what God made us to be. I'm going back to what I said earlier about mankind in the garden. What is man? What is our purpose? We are an idol, properly understood, in the proper sense of the term, an icon, an image. These are all synonymous. We are God's image in creation. We represent God in his creation. We act in his stead. Not in the sense of tikkun olam, because tikkun olam is remaking creation in the image of man, or really in the image of those men who adhere to that concept, the image of their God, who is very much not our God. Yes, we live in a fallen world. No, we cannot perfect a fallen world, but we can certainly make it better than it is today. And as Christians, it is incumbent on us to try. Part of that is being faithful with regard to the right-hand kingdom. That's attending church, that's holding to right doctrine, that's teaching your children, etc. But we must also be faithful in the left-hand kingdom. And that is the kingdom of the world. That is the state, that is politics. And part of that is speaking truthfully about history, even when that history makes people uncomfortable, even when that history requires you to say words that make other people uncomfortable, even when there may be consequences for speaking that truth. Now, of course, I am not saying go into your workplace and scream, it's the Jews. Don't do that. However, you are to employ wisdom in all matters. But as a Christian, you are not permitted to lie about these things. You are permitted not to address them or to avoid the topic if wisdom dictates you should do so. But lying about them is anti-Christian. Lying about them is sin. I would say to folks who are listening, even if you don't want to read E. Michael Jones' book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, 
I would suggest that you at least visit the archive.org link that we'll have in the show notes and just check, look at the chapter names. They're 25, 30 odd chapters. Each of them is a different aspect of the Jewish revolutionary spirit of Tikkun Olam, of this group of people with biblical ancestry going back. It's been corrupted. They have been corrupted by leaving God, by abandoning the God who led them out of Egypt. God instantly they abandoned within 40 days of leaving Egypt. Now, they came and went, but when you look at the list of things that E. Michael Jones lays out, and he makes a case in each of those chapters, what relevance it has to the Jewish people, it becomes unmistakable that for us as Christians, for us as citizens of whatever country we live in today, these are matters of survival. They're matters of polity. They're matters of spiritual significance. And they're matters that can only be addressed by talking about Jews. The manner in which we do it must be Christian. As Corey said, there's there's no moment in a Christian life where we can say, well, I'm not going to be Christian for the next five minutes because I'd really rather do this other thing. And then say mean, hateful, terrible things or commit violence or any whatever whatever thing you would like to do because you're mad about what somebody else did, that is the moment where you most need to be Christian because it's the moment where it's the hardest to be Christian because your sinful nature wants to go in one direction and God says the other direction. I think the trick that we as Christians have to understand in the 21st century is that our sinful nature doesn't only look to commit violence or say mean things or whatever active measure you might think, yeah, that's really bad. Our sinful nature also is a coward. Our sinful nature is to be fearful and to duck our heads and to stay out of the line of fire and to avoid saying something that's going to cause grief for us because it's easier if people leave you alone. And if saying something that's true that gets you punished is something that's scary to you, at some point you're going to have to choose, do I tell the truth or do I deny God? Because they're two sides of the same coin. If you start lying, you're losing your faith. And if there's something that the world is telling you you must lie about, it threatens your faith. It's actually a matter of salvation. Not that believing any of the stuff that we say is itself salvific or not. It's not. The gospel is contained in Scripture. We're not trying to elevate any of this to being holy writ. However, if it's true and you lie about it, you're sinning against God by lying. And it doesn't matter what you're lying about. And lies of omission are lies too. Failure to tell the truth when the truth is demanded is a sin. It's an easy sin. And it's an, it's an easy sin for someone who will say, I'm not going to shout hateful things. I'm not going to hit someone. I'm not going to advocate something that's overtly evil. It's a very quiet sin. It's, it's completely silent. That's the upside. That's the whole point of the sin of silence. When you fail to tell the truth when the truth is demanded, it's easy. You get away with it. No one knows you didn't say the thing that you knew you should have said. You know. God knows. And the world is made worse by your failure to be faithful to telling the truth. Now, as Corey said, that doesn't mean you go around shouting about these things. If, if you believe the things that we've said, it's a really hard thing for a lot of people to go through as they come to realize all this has been going on. 
because again, it's been going on for thousands of years. The Jews have been up to no good for thousands of years. That's that's troubling. That's that reshapes our own understanding of our history and of Scripture. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that people two hundred years ago would have believed something different. That's part of the reason we talked about Zionism. We'll probably do an episode in the future entirely about Zionism, particularly around the Schofield Bible and how it was inserted into particularly the American psyche and the American political system. Because cordoning off this whole subject area makes it possible for people who are up to no good to maneuver freely. No one's going to interfere. And if anyone tries to, you say, they're our greatest ally. I support Israel. They're the chosen people. If that's true, if that's scriptural, then yes, we're bound to it. The problem is none of it's true, and yet people believe it in good conscience. And so within our own nation, within our own people group, we have opposite sides in defense of an alien group. And again, alien isn't inherently bad. It means different. It means outside. If they're alien and they should be supported, if that were true, I'd be first in line because it's what God commanded. But it's not true, and it's actually incredibly spiritually and physically destructive for us to engage in it and for us to even remain silent about it. And a lot of people, when they discover this stuff, go from either complete indifference or complete Zionism. If they manage to get over the hump of saying, actually, this is true and I'm, I'm unhappy about it, it's really easy to fall off the other side of the horse and say, now I'm going to be rabidly against the Jews in all things at all times for all purposes. That's not the point. The point is tell the truth. And if the truth is that they're up to no good and we need to stop that by a Christian means, then by God, that's what we should do. But it should always be by God. It should always be what he wants, not what we want, not because we're fired up about something new. So if you learn anything from what we're saying in this series or any of the other things, zeal is good, but it has to be mediated by faithfulness. It's more important to maintain your footing as a Christian than to run off in a new direction, even if the new direction is the correct direction. Nothing we're saying here is false. All this is vital to the modern Christian life. But we would much prefer that if you believe this, you pivot slowly. You reorient yourself, do research, do study on your own, look at these sources, go read whatever you want to read. Just be aware that when they took over the banks 200 years ago, they took over a lot of other things too. Media is entirely controlled by Jews. That's It's called an anti-Semitic trope. It's called a stereotype. And yet at the same time, <laughs> on their very own websites, you'll see them writing articles about how it's true. It's, it's this cloaking device that's been put around an entire people where on one hand, it's false if it puts them in a bad light, but it's true if it puts them in a good light. That's not how the truth works. Either it's true or false, and if it makes them look good, okay, whatever. They look good, fine, I don't care. If it makes them look bad, then we have to deal with that. And so when you're digging into sources, it's, it's part of why the show notes are always so rich with these links when we can find them, because most of what you're going to read is going to contradict what we're saying. And you say, well, those guys are liars. Well, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that a part, necessary part of keeping you from seeing the truth is making sure that you're hemmed in 
by enough superficial sources that you never get to the truth. And then it's easy to go along with the entire crowd that's saying one thing, and you have a few people saying another thing, and some of them say it in really terrible ways. Some of them are hateful. Some of them are stupid. Some of the people who agree with us about some of these things are extremely embarrassing. And it makes me sad that I can't convince them to be better about A, being Christians, and B, being persuasive. But it's possible to tell the truth and to be a Christian at the same time. In fact, it's required. And so as we work through all this stuff, just remember that. If you're hearing something for the first time, or maybe you've heard it before and you always disregarded it, maybe we made a better case than you've heard and so you want to learn more, be cautious. Don't just go adopting new crap. That's how we got in this situation in the first place. People started throwing new stuff into our culture, saying, oh, now we're going to believe this instead. And what do we do? We threw out scripture. We threw out thousands of years of Christianity. And suddenly, usury is fine. Suddenly, feminism is valuable. Suddenly, the destruction of order and hierarchy is freedom. Let freedom ring. How did we get there? We got there by not checking our inputs and not comparing it with Scripture. That's all we're ever going to tell anyone to do. That's that's the only thing we're ever going to be vigorous about. Because if you do that vigorously and faithfully, you're going to come along on the rest of the stuff that we're talking about. I was wrong about most of the stuff most of my life. I mean, I, I didn't look. I was never a lib, but I was certainly indifferent. I was a libertarian. I was like, oh, yeah, whatever. Like, I'm, they're not hurting anybody. It's not my business. Don't be mean. Don't stereotype. It was only when I started looking at the facts as they played out immediately, because this isn't history. This is today. The revolutions, you know, the stuff in the 1800s, the stuff in the 1900s, it's happening on our streets today. It's threatening our families and our communities. And only by understanding that there's an overarching pattern that goes back, <laughs> frankly, to the Garden of Eden, goes back to the serpent. Once you can see that pattern weaving throughout history, then you can make sense of the things today that otherwise don't make any sense. That's why we said before, don't call people libtards. Don't say they're insane. What they're doing is evil, which is why, as Corey said, the right is the place of godly people. The right is fundamentally about order, full stop. When the communist revolutions were occurring in Europe in the 1900s, simultaneously, there was anarchy taking off in this country. We didn't have overt communists, but we had Italian anarchists sending pipe bombs everywhere. Hundreds of people died. Thousands were injured horrifically. It was a terror wave 100 years ago, and almost nobody knows about it. And anarchy and Talmudic Judaism go hand in hand. It's a repackaging for another ethnicity, for another situation, but the goal is the same. They were targeting bankers. They were targeting judges. They were they were targeting anyone who said, actually, all these people that just got off the boat are actually a social corruption. We should send them back. <laughs> that might sound familiar to you today. That's nothing new. That's something that America has dealt with for a long time. And 100 years ago, when they were trying to deal with it, there were judges and politicians and reporters who were getting killed by anarchists for saying it. So it's not always directly branded in the way, but the behavior and the pattern is always going to look the same. And so just look at the pattern. Pattern recognition, it's a part of IQ. It's also just part of being honest with yourself. You don't have to be that smart to figure this stuff out. You just have to believe your lying eyes. And when you find something that's a demonstrable historical fact, 
and it makes you reconsider things you believed before, okay, you were wrong. That's fine. It's part of being a grown-up to have been wrong about something and then to fix it. It's one of the most grown-up things you can ever do to admit, I was tricked. I was fooled. I see now. I said a bunch of dumb stuff. I did a bunch of dumb stuff. Repent. Straighten out. Tell the truth. Serve God. And so we'll close out this episode with a little bit of history and then two short passages of Scripture. First, I want to read a list of names, partly because it will be relevant for future episodes and partly because they are actually names worth reading. I'll resist reading the German versions. I'll read the English versions of the names. John, Duke of Saxony, Elector. George, Margrave of Brandenburg. Ernest, Duke of Lüneburg. Philip, Landgrave of Hesse. John Frederick, Duke of Saxony. Francis, Duke of Lüneburg. Wolfgang, Prince of Anhalt, Senate and Magistracy of Nuremberg, Senate of Reutlingen. These are the names, seven nobles and two cities, that were signed at the end of the Augsburg Confession, as presented to Emperor Charles V. The reason these names are relevant, the reason they're worth reading, is that when they presented this before the imperial diet in 1530 in Augsburg, they were very much putting their lives on the line. Not just their lives, but their names, their lands, their honor. And the reason they knew this was that earlier John Hus had been executed, and that was despite the fact that the Pope had promised him safe passage, safe conduct, and fair treatment. He was burnt at the stake for trusting in the Pope's word. So these men knew full well what the consequences of what they were doing could be. They knew that they could be stripped of their titles, potentially, potentially burnt at the stake as heretics for signing on to this confession of God's truth. And yet they did so. Because that is what Christians, particularly Christian rulers, are supposed to do. They were fulfilling their duty as faithful Christians, and as faithful Christian princes. But at the beginning of the Augsburg Confession, there is a short passage of Scripture, and it is a relevant passage of Scripture, and it is most interesting because it comes directly after mentioning that it is submitted to His Imperial Majesty Charles V, and directly before the preface which is addressed to His Imperial Majesty Charles V. And that is Psalm 119, verse 46. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame. And that is the Christian position, that God will carry us through. God will keep us safe, and it may very well be not to our mind what safety is, because God also ordained the end of John Hus. He went to the stake proclaiming God's truth, and he received a martyr's crown. That may be the end for some of us. It was not the end for these men, although many of them did suffer for the truth later on. The end is up to God. It is our duty to do what God has commanded us to do 
in the interim. And so I want to double down, as it were, on that passage of Scripture with the words of Christ from Matthew 10. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the nations. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household?